thanks for burying me with her. See, there was just no way to separate that out. <laughs> like, it's just one big narrative, right? It's one big narrative where we're really just looking at a, a wild day in the life of Paul. There's so much going on in this narrative. But to me, like, like, like we could get into the details, and we'll talk through some of them as we go along here. But to me, the big burning question that I have as I read this is, where does Paul get the nerve to, to act like this? Like, where does he get off? Like, how does he become this sort of person? Because consider what has happened, right? Paul, and we, we talked about this in the last couple of weeks, Paul has come down to Jerusalem. He was up in Asia Minor planting churches. He's been up there for several years. Um, but he just, just feels like the Holy Spirit is telling him, now it's time for him to go to Jerusalem. The Lord has something for him to do there. But every stop along the way, and, and again, we read about this in Acts 20, 21. Um, every stop along the way, he's going, and the Christians there are like getting these visions and prophecies that really, when he goes to Jerusalem, it's not going to go very well. They're going to beat him. They're going to arrest him. They're going to tie him up. Um, so Paul knows this, and yet he continues to go anyway. And then as, as we saw at the end of, of last week, we, we talked we covered this the beginning of this section last week as well, he comes into the temple. He's basically been warned by the, the elders of the Jerusalem church that you know, there's some people who are kind of mad at him. They, they suspect him of, of teaching some things. They're teaching Jews to give up on the law, and they're really mad about this. They're mad that he's, he's kind of raised the Gentiles up and, and preached the gospel among them. He, they consider that Paul has abandoned the law of Moses. And so he, they, they send him to do a little task of purifying himself according to the ritual laws in order to placate these people who are skeptical about him, who, who, people who are trying to lie about him and say that he doesn't care about the law. He says, you do this in the temple, you purify yourself, and then it'll prove to them that you actually do love the law. But it backfires because when Paul is there uh, finishing up this ritual, he's in the temple the people who have been lying about him encircle him, and they incite a riot against him, saying that he's done all these things, and they, they, they get this mob, and they throw him out of the temple, and then they start to beat him in front of the temple. And, um, you know, because the, the Jerusalem is under Roman occupation, the Roman soldiers um, up in the garrison come down to the temple, and they say, everybody stop, and they, they grab hold of Paul, they, they really are, they save him from the mob. The mob was going to kill him. They grab hold of him, and they try to figure out what's going on, and what does Paul do? What does Paul do? This is crazy. This man is crazy. Does he say, oh, good. The police are here. It's all going to be okay. Let's get out of here. He says, excuse me, officer. Thank you for being here. I so appreciate it. Could I just, can I just have one more try? Can I, just, I, just, I know there's this angry mob, but I would like to speak to them. Could you just back up a little bit? I just want to talk to them, just like a heart-to-heart -heart with the angry mob. Uh, Paul thinks differently than I do. It's shocking, really. It makes you wonder, how did Paul get this way? How do you become so sold out for Jesus that when people start to beat you and someone comes to rescue you, you say, just let me back at him. <laughs> I've got to, to get him this time. I, I think it's so great. And what does he do? He quiets them down. He starts to speak to them in their own language. So, so the Romans can't even understand what he's saying. He starts to speak to them in their own language. And he just, what he does is he tells them the, his story. He tells them his story in the hopes that 
his story, the story that he's witnessing to, the story of what Jesus has done for him will change their hearts, the hearts of this angry mob that is dead set on killing him. He says, no, I have something to tell you, and he tells him his story. He, he begins, you know, and I'm really abbreviating it, verse uh, 22, verse 3, he says, I was zealous for God just as you are all today. Saying, look at you guys, you're out here, you are all about the law, and you're skeptical of us Christians coming in and saying that God embraces Gentiles, he doesn't make them get saved according to law, and that he even, he even will save people according to grace, not according to a list of things that they've done, but according to his love and his mercy poured out and secured by the blood of Jesus. He says, I get why you're skeptical of that, because I was zealous for the law, just as you are today. He understands what they were like. That was his story. But he tells them that something happened, an event happened to him where all of a sudden he was on his way to Damascus to find Syrian Christians, Jewish Christians, people who were, who were Jews, who, who, who started to believe in this Jesus. He was going there to arrest them and bring them back to be, stand trial in Jerusalem. And all of a sudden, intense light from heaven suddenly flashed around me. And I fell to the ground, and I heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Saying, I was just like you, zealous for the law, so much so that I was going around arresting people. I was, I was enforcing our laws. I was Paul, the enforcer. I was standing by when we stoned someone to death for this egregious assault against the law. And I was on my way, and all of a sudden, light showed up, and Jesus revealed himself to me. And he said, why are you persecuting me? And Paul has now seen Jesus, right? And he sees Jesus in this moment, and then he's struck blind until a man named Ananias comes from the nearby city, and he prays for him, and he tells him, the God of our ancestors has appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one, and to hear words from his mouth, since you will be a witness for him to all people of what you have seen and heard. So where does Paul get the nerve? Well, he has the nerve because he has faith. This man has faith. Faith in what God has said. Faith in what God has shown him. Faith in what God has revealed in Jesus Christ. God has called him, and like God makes it really clear. He says, God has called him to know his will, to see the righteous one, to hear words from his mouth, and to be a witness to all people. And Paul just like... like Jesus shows up in his life, and suddenly his life changes. Where he had doubt and skepticism, zeal for the law, now he has zeal for the love of, for, for love of God, for the word of God, for the grace of God, for Jesus Christ. Paul talks about where his faith came from, and he points to the reality that was changed when he met Jesus. Suddenly he met Jesus, and everything changed for him. And I, I mean, I think we understand that. We know, I think very well, in our particular culture, in our Christian culture, that faith is personal. Faith is a personal encounter with Jesus. It's like we hear the gospel, and it makes sense to us. And we understand there is a, there's a call, a response that needs to have, that's called repentance. 
It's not just a moral thing, but it's a whole life thing. It's I, I understand the revelation of Jesus Christ and, and what his gospel means, what his work on the cross, his forgiveness on the cross means for me. It means that my whole life needs to be different. The fundamental things that I believed before are changed because of who Jesus is and what he's revealed himself to me. And that's a deeply personal thing. Because faith is not an abstract idea that God is love generally. Faith that transforms people is this confidence that we have that suddenly actually, no, God loves me. And God met me on the road as I was against him. And God spoke not, not wrath, but purpose and kindness and forgiveness to me. And I wasn't even looking for him. In fact, I was totally against him. Uh, but I had this personal encounter with Jesus. I came to know and believe that he died for me. I came to know and believe that he was Lord, and I was once against him, but now I want to be for him. In Galatians, Paul talks about this personal experience of him coming to know Jesus. He says this, when God, who from my mother's womb set me apart and called me by his grace, uh, he was pleased to reveal his son in me. What Paul comes to realize in this moment when Jesus shows up in his life and says, why are you persecuting me? It's that actually he had been living against God's plan for him, the plan that God had from the beginning of the world, that he had set him part, apart from his mother's womb and called him by grace. Suddenly he sees Jesus and he wakes up to the calling of God in his life. And that personal faith changes his whole outlook on his whole life. He it represents his life to him. Faith recasts the significance of his life to him. Because he understands, oh no, now I have a purpose. And God has set me to this purpose to know the Son of God and to have him living in me, the Holy Spirit working in my life, and to have Him, his very person revealed in me. Christ in me is suddenly my life purpose. Paul knows what it is to be chosen, to be set apart, to be called by grace, to have the Son revealed in him, to have Jesus Christ working in him, changing his heart, changing his desire, the Holy Spirit working and moving through him. But I don't think Paul is talking about something unique to him. In fact, if we read Paul's letters, it's very clear. Paul preaches loud and clear that what happened to him has happened to all people who have come and had personal faith in Jesus Christ. Galatians 3, 27 through 29, and then I'm skipping ahead a little bit into, into chapter 4. He says this, those of you who were baptized into Christ have been clothed with Christ. There is no Jew or Greek, slave or free, male or female, since you all are one in Christ Jesus. If you be belong to Christ, then you're Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. And skipping ahead a little bit. And because you are sons, God has set his... Uh, Set the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, so you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then God has made you an heir. So Paul describes as something that's true of him. He had this personal response to faith, and he says, it's absolutely what's true of every person who has heard about the grace of God and the forgiveness of God and, and, and the adoption by faith. It's true of all people. You suddenly become, you were enemies with God, but by faith, by forgiveness, you now become sons, heirs, co-heirs with Christ, not slaves anymore, but free. There's a transformation that happens with faith. It totally recasts who I think I am. It's deeply personal. It gives me a new purpose, gives me a new family, gives me a new desire, new callings, new joys. 
To have faith is to believe God knows you, he sees you, he's died for you, he's taken away your sins, he's made you a child, he's made you an heir, he's taken away your slavery and given you adoption. Faith is deeply personal. And it breeds confidence in us, right? When we're faithful, we have this confidence that, man, if God is with me, who can be against me? Your life changes, your inner life, your thoughts, your hopes, your joys. The way you show up in life changes. But I think we need to know this. Faith is personal, but it does not end in the personal. Remember Paul's commission? He was commissioned not just to know God, not just to hear from him, not just to have a relationship with him. All those things, yes, and you too. But he's called to be a witness to Jesus Christ in the world. And I need you to hear this. Faith is and must be and ought to be and can be and should be for you a great source of comfort, a great source of inner strength, a great source of confidence. Your faith should be personal and it should be edifying and it should just be like the anchor in your life. That's what we're invited to have when we trust in Jesus Christ. But your faith is also public. It has to be public just as much as it's personal. The writer of the book of Hebrews, who some people think is Paul, and some people don't, and I don't know, I wasn't there, uh, says this in Hebrews 3, 12, watch out, brothers and sisters, so that there won't be any of you, uh, be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God, but encourage each other daily while it's still called today, so that none of you is hardened by sin's deception. For we have become, and this is it, we have become participants in Christ if we hold firmly until the end the reality that we had at the start. And I love that translation. You probably are more familiar with the translation that says confidence that we had at the start. But there's, the thing about translation is you bring out different senses of a word, and I love this sense. <laughs> if we hold fast the reality that we had at the start, that's what we're called to in faith. When I come to believe that Jesus Christ is Lord of all things, that he saved me, that he has purpose for me, then it recasts what I think is ultimately true, the reality that I live in. And faithful people are called to sit with that and let that reality, the proclamation of what God has done in Jesus Christ, change their whole lives change everything about them. Changes our personal life, our inward thoughts as we meditate on the word of God, as we pray with him, as we have a relationship with him, as, as, as we hear what he's done, but it's also going to change our outward lives, our public lives. It's going to do so, it's going to change because reality always changes what is ultimately true. We are, we are kind of obliged to it in a sense. Because of what faith is, it's a reality thing, that means it's also a public thing. Yes, your faith is personal. It's Jesus seeing you, knowing you, loving you, but it is also necessarily a public thing because you exist in the world. 
And so your life is going to be lived out. You're going to be, have, if you've come to know the love and grace and kindness, the adoption of Jesus Christ, then it's going to change who you are in the world. It's going to change the things that you are excited about. It's going to change how you interact with people because you have a new understanding of reality, a reality marked by grace where you suddenly see the world is just full of God's love and kindness, his wide open invitation to all people. The world is not cruel, it is not heartless, it does not go to the one with the most money or the most things, it goes to the one who loves God and is open to his purposes. And the happiest, smartest, best, the person who lives the good life is the person who delights in the Lord and not in any other thing. The personal will become public if it's really deeply personal. It's just inevitable. See, Paul didn't get saved, and he didn't go back, turn around in Damascus and go back to the synagogue where they sent him out and just be like, hey, guys, so I'm just going through some things. I'm just going to resign my Christian killing position. I just need it. It's a new season for me. I don't want to talk about it right now. <laughs> it's really personal, <laughs> right? I don't mean to mock that. I know. I, I mean, I sort of did. I did. I mean, I meant to mock it. I apologize. I lied to you. Um, but here's the thing. When something is really deeply personal, and the Lord has totally transformed what I think is true about my life, it can't end like that. Like, it just doesn't. It's just not realistic to think that everything, like, like, like something so drastic as the gospel is going to result in an internal reality change. Leslie Newbegin, who I like a lot, a theologian, says this. We've looked at this quote before. He says, The confession Jesus is Lord implies a commitment to make good that confession in relation to the whole of life of the world. Its philosophy, its culture, its politics, no less the personal lives of its people. The Christian mission is thus to act out in the whole of life, the whole world, uh, life of the whole world, the confession that Jesus is Lord of all. That is a much bigger vision for the implications of what my personal faith has. You know what? Like, if you are called and, and, and Jesus Christ has revealed himself to you, like, it is going to spill out into your life in every way. What you believe, your, your philosophy, your worldview, your purpose, uh, your, even your politics, maybe not in the ways of, like, American pol party politics, so I have a lot to say about that. I'm not going to say a word. Zip it. I'm not going to say anything about that this morning, um, right? But it's going to change how I show up into the world. It has to. Faith is public, which is to say that if we have faith that is just limited to what's going on in the envelope of my skin, which is a weird phrase, uh, we, have, um, we have a faith that I think has not come into full maturity. Like, like, it has to get out into the world because that's what it is. Faith is a matter of confidence that God, what God says is really true and it is defining of reality and it's giving me a new purpose and new joys in life and a new invitation on how I can live and we need to open up the envelope so that it would spill out into the world. We need to understand that Jesus' claim to be Savior is true in all parts of my life. Not just say what goes on in here or what goes on in here. It has to come out into here, my hands, my feet, my mouth, even my eyes. 
what I'm looking at, what I am paying attention to. Maybe you feel discouraged in your faith. And maybe you're just like, ah, I can't work myself up to that. Like, and you go down all this list of the implications of things, and then you start to feel bad about all the things that you fail at, right? I know like, I know like six of you are there right now. Come on back. Come on back. Just go back. You might feel discouraged. And if that's you, my guess is that that's because like you, you have probably even a very, very deeply, deep, deeply formed private faith, but, you, but you're confused about how to make it public, and you don't like the available options, which I resonate with, like some of the examples of how Christians live out their faith. You're like, well, it doesn't seem very kind. <laughs> so, right? so, so then that's, again, I'm zipping it. Um, but here's the thing. My point is not saying, I am not saying to you, shape up, do better, work harder. I'm not saying that. I'm not saying, go out, here's some tracks, stuff them in your pocket, and go hand out 10 of them every single day. And if not, do you even have a public faith? That's not what I'm saying. Uh, My point is just this. What you believe, what you truly hold deeply personal, it will spill out into your public into your public life. And to attempt to believe something as a merely personal reality that you don't end up living out is actually a plan to be discouraged in that faith. Like if you're saying, okay, I'm going to hold my faith in Jesus, but it's just going to be just me. and I'm not ever going to share it. I'm not going to let it impact my little life. You are literally planning to be discouraged in that personal faith. Because we have to live out what we believe. There's this process of growth in faith that is inward and then outward. It's like two steps. Otherwise, we're just like trying to run a marathon like this, right? But public, private, public, private, what Jesus has said, what I believe in my heart, and then it leads me to action in the world. And then I find that Jesus is faithful and good and his spirit shows up, and I want more and more of this to the point eventually... (laughs) Where I could confront dangerous situations and just say, no, I'm pretty sure I've got to speak up for Jesus here. I've got to witness for him because I understand that I have a purpose deeply formed within me. It's deeply personal, but it's also deeply public. It has to be both of those things. Paul was on fire for Jesus. And I don't think it has to do with his unique temperament. I think it was simply because he was awake to the reality-altering magnitude of the gospel. And he let that come deeply into his heart, and then he followed it through with the implications that everything, well, if this is true, then everything in my life has to change. And he spent, he, he goes from here, well, not, not from where we're at in the narrative, right, but from becoming a Christian in Damascus, and then he spends two years in the desert studying the scriptures and drawing out the implications. If this is true, if Jesus is Lord, what does it mean for everything else? Um, that's not prescriptive necessarily. <laughs> Unless you got two years. <laughs> you're like, oh, yeah, I could do two years in the desert. Maybe, maybe you can't. But, but he, he goes in this process of, of exploring the word of God, of exploring the gospel, going to the scriptures and understanding, okay, what does this mean for my life? And it, it's just like he, he, his mind is blown by it. Ephesians 3, 8 through 13, Paul talks about the magnitude of God, the gospel. He says, this grace was given to me, the least of all the saints, 
to proclaim to the Gentiles the incalculable riches of Christ and to shed light for all about the administration of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. This is so that God's multifaceted wisdom may now be made known through the church to the rulers and authorities in the heavens. And this is according to the eternal purposes accomplished in Christ Jesus, our Lord. In him, we have boldness and confident access through faith in him. Yeah, I read that right. <laughs> so then I ask you not to be discouraged over my afflictions on your behalf, for they are your glory. Why was Paul so bold? How did he get to this place of boldness? Well, he says it right here. Paul was bold because of the riches of Christ Jesus, because of God's eternal plan to make him, uh, to, to, to make uh, his rule and reign in Je Jesus Christ evident to all things, people, rulers, and authorities, to lift up Christ above all things. His boldness came from that, what God was already doing and what he revealed in Christ Jesus that he's doing in the world so he can be bold in the wake of the great move of the gospel and of the power of God on the cross to transform reality. His boldness comes right after what Jesus has already done and the power of his spirit at work in the world. He doesn't have to lead the way. He's following right behind. Understanding, well, if this is true, that Jesus has done all these things, he knows God is ruler of all, Christ is king of all, and that king hears him and knows him, then he will be bold. We can have boldness because we have confident access through faith in him. Because Jesus is Lord, we have the power of God. God is on our side. We can listen to him, be led by him. We can trust our lives to him in all things. He says the, the magnitude of the gospel, he's just following right behind in it. Paul wasn't bold because he was a tough guy. Paul wasn't bold because, uh, Paul was bold because he had a faith and that faith was public logically because he understood what Jesus was up to. Not because Paul had some special, unique purpose, but simply because uh, he had confidence Well, if the gospel, that if the gospel is true for me, then it's true for all people. And God is revealing it to be true for all people. And I have to just witness to that fact. I have to just come in and, and say, hey, look, this is what God did for me. I cannot escape the reality of it, and I just need to talk about it. You can't be content to keep the message in anymore because it's so big and so bold. Paul's not just a guy. He's not. And we have to stop reading Paul this way. Like, we are, we are misreading Paul if we think this. He is not a guy who just wanted to force his view on other people. That's a super American way of thinking about Paul. <laughs> Rather, he is someone who has just, man, seen clearly how good and awesome the gospel is for all people. It is life, freedom, peace, forgiveness, adoption, the unmitigated good news of the love of God for all people. And so he just says, well, of course I have to talk about that. Like, that's not bullying. That's God's kindness. This is the message of God's kindness, his forgiveness, turning away wrath, not punishing. He says, Galatians 3, he says, the scriptures have imprisoned everything under the power of sin so that the promise might be given on the basis of faith in Jesus Christ to those who believe. Before this faith came, we were confined under the law, imprisoned until the coming of, of faith was revealed. 
The law then was our guardian in Christ so that we could be justified by faith. And here's the big thing. But since this faith has come, we're no longer under a guardian. For through faith, we are all sons of God in Christ Jesus. I was zealous for the law. I was zealous for this partial thing. I realize now that Jesus Christ is pouring out adoption, grace, and kindness for all people, not just Jews, not, just, uh, not, not only Gentiles, but for all people, men, women, Gentiles, slave, free. All people are folded into this story. And so I have to witness to what God is doing. How could I not? It's such good news. You don't have to earn your way into God's favor. He's already paid the price. His love has gone before you. He's taken away sins. You can just come in and find yourself in this story. So Paul had a public faith because he had to have a public faith. There was no other way. And we are called to have a public faith. Not, not so that you can be good little worker bees for Jesus. That's not it. That's not the motivating factor. You're not set on mission just to get a job done. Your mission doesn't flow from the utility or the purpose. It comes from the revelation. God is, God is saving the world in Jesus Christ. How could we not witness to that? Everyone likes to give good news. There's no one here who's like, I'd rather give the bad news. <laughs> Everyone likes to share good news with people. This is just the logic of the gospel. We just go and witness to the good news. You're called to a personal faith, but a public faith, one that follows after and is shaped by what God has revealed in Christ Jesus. And many of us, including myself, we can buy into the personal side. We get that. We get it. Oh, I'm saved by Jesus. Okay, raise my hand. I want that grace. But we struggle to wrap our heads and our hearts and our hands around the public side of the gospel. And there's some reasons for that. Legitimate reasons. Things that we just need to confront. Okay, so, so I, I think there's at least two. We have two problems, two obstacles to having a public face. The, the first is, and this is a big word, I apologize, is an epistemological problem. Or a knowledge problem. We think that it is not enough to say, I know what Jesus has done for me. We think that that's not enough to share with people. We have a knowledge problem. Leslie Newbegin, who I quoted before, and I just really like, he, he says this, and this is kind of, a, kind of a big quote. We're going to process it in a second. He says this. The false dichotomy is set up between I know and I believe. All this nonsense bears witness to that shadow cast by the idea that there is available or should be available a kind of knowledge which is not knowledge of the fallible human subject living in a specific context, but is, to use the blessed word again, objective. That idea is simply an illusion, and it has become so powerful that it can rob the Christian of the freedom to say simply, I know whom I have believed. We believe in order to understand, and our struggle to understand is a response to grace. Real understanding becomes possible not by seeking a certitude apart from grace, but by accepting the calling to seek understanding while knowing that full understanding will be a gift of grace beyond the horizon of our own searching. I know that's a lot, and there's a lot of ideas here, but just, just to, to boil it down, 
Newligan is really into this. He's confronting this idea that we've separated belief from knowledge and that one is deficient from the other. We exalt in the modern world knowing and we do so in a fully materialistic way so that we can only know things in the material world. And it is not possible to know things that are what the Greeks called metaphysical, right, or spiritual. We only believe things that are spiritual. And so what we've done, and we've accepted a framework of looking at the world that has two tiers. Top tier is knowledge, material stuff that we can test and prove by science, by math, by hard sciences, right? And then there's this whole world of things down below that's less real, and we call it believing. And so we've relegated the revelation of Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit showing up in our lives and changing us to a category of knowledge that is less than math and science. I'm not against math and science, but I am saying this is a dumb idea. And throughout all time in history, people have experienced truth as a person. Right? People have been changed and transformed by the gospel. That proves its value. And we've gotten to this point where I think we're, we're saying, okay, well, I can't really go out and really talk to my neighbor who's struggling and just say, like, I, what I could do is I could say, well, maybe there's some truth out there, you know, but I don't want to be too suggestive about what the truth is because maybe my truth is different than their truth, right? Where it's like, we just need to say, hey, look, I met Jesus and he transformed my life. And that, that should be good enough for us. But we are... I don't want to say cowardly because that's a mean word. What's another word that's nicer? Insecure. Thank you, my wife. Always, always, always much nicer than me. <laughs> we are insecure in our knowledge of Jesus Christ. We're insecure enough to just say, hey, look, my life is not the same because I know him. And I really think yours could be too. That is good enough. To be a witness for Jesus, to simply be a witness for Jesus, not to be the smartest person who can buy apologetics, and I'm not down on apologetics, I like apologetics, but like, if you think, you think, oh, well, I can't share Jesus, I just have to go get this person who's smarter than me, or has read more books than me, or understands philosophy better, or this issue, like, that person is going to convince this person. Like, no, you just witness to what Jesus has done. That is an absolutely valid basis for belief. You've experienced God in your life, and he's changed you. It's not, it's not less than. It's not less than. So we need to get over our knowledge, our epistemological obstacles to witness. Because Paul just did that. Look, look what he says in 1 Corinthians 1. And I am wrapping up here, I promise. <laughs> uh, 1 Corinthians 1, 21 says this. Since, for since in God's wisdom, the world did not know God through wisdom, God was pleased to save those who believe through the foolishness of what is preached. For the Jews asked for a sign... And the Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. Yet to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. Because God's foolishness is wiser than human wisdom. And God's weakness is stronger than human strength. What Paul is saying is not, oh, wisdom is dumb. It can just be dumb. What he's saying is that wisdom is set against knowledge of God because it is fully materialistic. And we proclaim God's intervention in history through the power of the Spirit, through Jesus Christ taking away sin. Uh, a pastor, I, I 
on Twitter. This was just last night, so I didn't have time to get this up here. He says this, the trite quip of being so heavenly minded that there no earthly good is not our problem. The problem of the disenchanted Christian soul is a result of the exact opposite. We're so enthralled by the material world that we have ceased to believe in any other world. Right? Not even me. This pastor's great. <laughs> We've ceased to believe in the power of God in the world. We think, oh, all things are just human wisdom, and what really matters will just be, like, logical and objective. And the fact is that the gospel is just the intervention of God in history and time. It's salvation to people. It's transforming and I, I, I'm not down on apologetics. I really like apologetics. I read a lot of apologetics. I think they're important to some people. But don't think you don't have something to say to someone because you haven't read a bunch of books. You can testify to the one that you've believed. And the and worship team is going to come up here. But the second obstacle to public faith is, is just doubt, right? Doubt, which is, is like a locus of problems, Many different problems are a part of, of doubt. I want to read you Hebrews 3, uh, 19 for a second. It says this. We see, and like he's, refer refuting, or he's, he's referring to Israel's story, right? The writer of the book of Hebrews is talking about the Israelites and the problem that they faced when it came to their faith. We see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. Therefore, since the promise to enter his rest remains, let us be aware that none of you may be found to have fallen short. For we also have received the good news, just as they did. But the message they heard did not benefit them, since it was not united with those who heard it in faith. It's not united with faith in those who heard it. People, like he's talking about the Israelites, they were saved out of Egypt, right? They saw the Red Sea part. So they walked over on dry land, and then Pharaoh came behind them trying to chase them, and the sea fell on them. And then they were led out into the desert, and they started to grumble and say, is this going to work out? And they, they, this is the thing. Is they, they did not mingle what they saw and heard with faith. Like, would God bring you through the desert doing miraculous things? Proving his power and his kindness to you. And then would he bring you out into the desert and let you die? Faith was, was failing to follow through the implications of the personal salvation, what God has done to them. And understand, that means that God is going to follow you through all the way to the end. Like, he's going to save you in the real world. He's going to have a, a public salvation where he's going to bring you into the new place. Your personal faith will not benefit you right? Unless it have a full-blown public faith that just like trusts that God is going to, to, to get me where I need to go. I've got a little slide here, and, and it just like an image that I thought was, was sort of helpful. I really think that the problem of doubt is really just the problem of self, and it manifests in at least these three things, cynicism, fear, and apathy. If you're feeling these ways, then, you, then you're probably doubting, doubting God's goodness, doubting God's kindness. If you're cynical about what God's doing in the world, you're thinking, eh, are people ever going to change? Is Seattle ever going to change? Is the world ever going to change? Is anything ever really going to be different? You know, if you're, if you're doom and glooming and unconfident that God can, can, can save people, that's called cynicism. 
and it is like going to kill faith. We need to overcome it. Fear, I mean, like we're, we're afraid of what's going on in culture, and we're afraid of, man, am I going to have what I need for tomorrow? Am I going to have, is God going to take care of me in difficult times? And indulging in, in fear, like, is going to kill your faith. Because it's, 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 it's warring against your confidence in the reality of what, you've already, what God has already proved to you, that he loves you, he cares you, he's going to walk you through. And then there's apathy, and I think this is the most common one. We're just too busy to care. We don't want to take the risk of caring. We don't want to take the risk of really like saying, I think really God is, is real, and I'm going to put all my chips on that fact. And so we just sit back. We're saying, well, if God's really real, he'll prove it to me, and then I'll get, get on board with it but we're missing out on the faith. We're missing out on what God wants to do. What he wants us to do is say, look, I've proved myself to you. I've I've saved you. Now go and be a witness to me. Like, put all your chips on me. And and what's what's happening is like, it's like, it's like the tide of the kingdom of God is like coming into the shore. This new thing that God is doing, it's happening in the world. But what we're doing is we're getting caught up in the undertow. The old stuff is being pushed out. We're being dragged down, and we're not just walking into what God has to do. That undertow image is helpful for me. I don't know if it's helpful for you at all. But what I do know is this. And what I'm just going to ask us to do is, can we just stand up for a second? As we worship God, I just want you to take an inventory of yourself. And I want you to see, like, can you put your finger on cynicism or fear or apathy. And these are like, I, I, don't, I don't want to go with, down the road of guilt because it's not helpful. But I just want to ask you something. Like, sit with that for a moment. Say, okay, am I apathetic? Am I cynical? Am I fearful about the world? And then I want to ask yourself to, to, to go back in your mind. And, and as we're in this worship song, I, I want you to say, Holy Spirit, would you remind me of what you've already done in my life? And then I want you to go back and say, what does that mean about these things? Because I think so much of it is that God has proved himself to us and yet we will not just come in with that confidence shaped by his faithfulness into our struggles. And I just believe that God, it's, he's not mad at us. He's not mad at us. He's not, he's not like, oh, these silly people, and I'm just, I'm just sick of them. But what he so wants for us to do is to step into the new things that he's doing and to put away cynicism and fear and apathy. Sometimes that's going to be, I have to forgive some people. Sometimes that means I'm going to have to accept forgiveness from him because I just like feel bad about myself. You are forgiven by the blood of Jesus Christ. If you've trusted him, if you said, Lord, I just, I just want to give up my life to you. I want to have faith in you, and I want to put away sin. Like, you're forgiven. Like, you need to walk in a full assurance of what he's done. And so let's just um, go before the Lord, and I'm just going to say, come, Holy Spirit. Would you minister to us right now? As we sing and worship you, Lord, would you minister to us? Would you build up, Lord? Would you give us confidence? We don't know how to, we don't know how to flip the confidence switch in our hearts, but Lord, we look back to what you've done and we want to persevere in faith. Teach us to persevere in faith, to confront apathy, fear, and cynicism.
Lord, just be with us now. Let's worship.